In August of 2019, I found myself in Kenya with some really remarkable people. I was there to work with this organization that helps young leaders who themselves are leading movements in conflict zones. So these are young people like age 18 to 25 who came from 16 different countries around the world where there's really largely very overt and violent brokenness. Uh, for example, it's a young 20-year-old who leads a massive youth movement in El Salvador that recruits kids away from the gangs that are running and destroying that country. Or in Afghanistan, it's a woman and a man who lead a youth movement that recruits young people away from the Taliban and into a different vision of life in Afghanistan. So the invitation for me was to go and be a bit of a spiritual advocate or a chaplain for these young leaders, which I love and was really grateful for. They came from every world faith that you can imagine. And I got to be there as a sort of pastor, friend, and advocate for these young Christian and Buddhist and Hindu and Muslim and Jewish leaders as they do really brave work. Uh, a lot of these people literally have like bounties on their head and um, face threats every day, but they've found the bravery and the conviction to create something different in the face of some really complicated things. So the invitation for me was um, to go be a, a chaplain sort and a facilitator uh, for them as they think about the work that they're doing but the reason for me to go was really to learn. I, I can't think of anything more important than to be with people who are actually figuring out how you put things together in a broken world. And so I went there, you know, ostensibly to shepherd them and help them and, and really more deeply to learn from them. And I learned uh, so much. And their stories, their names, their faces are still with me in a really deep way. Uh, one of the other privileges of being there was not only to learn from these young leaders, but to learn from some of the experts that were brought to this sort of summit. And one of those experts uh, was Dr. Erica Chenoweth. Uh, Chenoweth uh, is a faculty member at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And Dr. Chenoweth uh, made their name a few years ago with some groundbreaking research that has really shaped the way that people think about social change in the world. Now let me give you some background on Dr. Chenoweth because it's interesting where they came from. So Dr. Chenoweth got into their field of specialty uh, thinking that they were going to spend the rest of their life essentially doing research to help militaries get better at what militaries do. So that, that's the way that Dr. Chenoweth came to their work, uh, to help militaries get better at what militaries do. But the, the academic work led them further and further into these questions about how is it that you pursue social change. And by social change, they're, they're speaking specifically of like regime change. We're talking about like if you're in a country with a totalitarian government or leader, like, how do you actually deal with that, overthrow that, and create a different kind of government and a different kind of future for your country? I know those of us who live uh, in, the, in the United States, um, in a lot of ways, live insulated from that kind of thing. But you'd be perhaps shocked, or maybe not, at just how often that's what people are dealing with in the countries they live in. So this is really relevant and important stuff. And what was especially interesting about Dr. Chenoweth is Chenoweth didn't bring like, any kind of ideological bias to this work. So the question they're asking was, like, if you want to change things in your country, what's the best way to get what you want? Specifically, do you choose violent means of change or nonviolent means of change? That was the question. Now, I don't know about you. I know I would probably come to that thinking, well, I like the idea of nonviolence a lot more than violence. <laughs> it seems better to me. I even have some theological reasons for believing that, right? However, I've also never lived under circumstances that 
for myself personally, would raise the question of violence, right? So it's easy for me, I think, from where I sit and for the life experience that I've had to, you know, quickly, you know, have a commitment toward the nonviolent track. But Dr. Chenoweth recognized that all over the world, people are asking very serious questions about what do we do about the way that power is structured and the way that it's destroying people and how do we fix it? And Dr. Chenoweth came to that work not ideologically committed to nonviolence, but one of the reasons Dr. Chenoweth is, is known so widely in that field now is that really overwhelmingly through a, a very nuanced uh, empirical analysis, Dr. Chenoweth's work demonstrated that nonviolent change is the best way to get what you want. And by best, they simply mean like to get the outcome that you desire. That's, that's actually the best way to get there. So Dr. Chenoweth was, was there in Kenya uh, helping these young leaders think about the kind of change they want to see in their country and presenting all the layers of research that came from that work. And uh, not only did we get to get this sort of um, highbrow, very uh, data-driven presentation from Dr. Chenoweth about how to pursue nonviolent social change, uh, but we also had an evening together around this big bonfire um, out there in Kenya where another thing I got to do was just have interviews with these experts uh, with all the delegates gathered there to pursue not just the content of their data, but to explore the heart behind it. So we had the presentation from Dr. Chenoweth, and then uh, one night uh, we sat there uh, talking about the hope and the heart behind the work that they were doing. And I remember sitting there with this big fire and these very inspiring people all around me and realizing that it's not just like a values-driven conclusion, that the data bears out that violence cannot create the world we want. It can't. I mean, that's, that's not just a, 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 a theological idea or a, a value-driven idea. It's a data-driven idea from this work. Another way of saying it is that vengeance cannot create the world that we want. Vengeance cannot create the world that we want. And I'll tell you all of that uh, as a backdrop for where we are in the creed. So since last September, we've been studying the Apostles' Creed. It's this ancient way of understanding Christian faith. And really, it's making claims about ultimate reality. It's saying that this is what we believe about the story that we live in as human beings. And whether you agree with it or not, it's a different question. But that's, that's the claim that the creed is making. We've been working through it for a while. And for a few weeks now, we've been in the last part of the creed that speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me remind you what that whole part of the creed says, and then we'll zoom in on where we are today. The creed says we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, that means they're the, the universal church all over the world, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And that's the end of the creed, amen. Today, we're specifically looking at this line. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. We trust in the forgiveness of sins. We give our heart to the idea of the forgiveness of sins. It's right there in the creed. Now, one of the ways I like to wrestle with the creed or with scriptures or other teachings is to take a step back and pretend for a moment that I don't know what it says. And instead, imagine how you or I might fill in the gaps like a Mad Lib if we didn't know that the creed says we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And I've, I've thought about this line, and I've thought about my own experience, and I've thought about so many experiences that I've heard from you. And if I'm being honest, I think we would probably say something like, we believe in a God who every once in a very great while has a good day and who on those good days, if we're very, very lucky, and if this God has seen us beat ourselves up sufficiently through enough acts of self-flagellation, may just for a moment share with us a meager scrap of mercy, but only if this God doesn't catch us for one scarce moment believing too freely and a freely given forgiveness. And we all said, 
Amen. Am I the only one who would admit that that's actually what I carry around with me some days? Is that what you picked up maybe from your upbringing or for some particular preaching that you heard? That to me seems like a truer reflection of what a lot of us actually believe and trust, what we carry around, what we are wrestling with when we think about notions of sin, brokenness, failure, and forgiveness. But the creed doesn't say that. The creed says simply, profoundly, beautifully, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. We trust in the forgiveness of sins. Now, the writers of the creed didn't come up with that. You know that, right? This isn't them inventing things from scratch, right? It's all over the pages of the New Testament. It's all over the pages of Scripture, in fact. I could show you a million examples. We could spend the next several hours just going text after text after text that speaks of the forgiveness of sins. We could take you to Jesus on the cross, where at the moment when they're actually crucifying him, at the peak of his suffering, when we as a human race brought all of our capacity for betrayal, and failure and violence, when, when we brought all of that against him, we could go to that moment where he says in the middle of it all, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We could turn to a letter called Romans where a guy named Paul writes and says emphatically, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Zero. No condemnation. I could take you to those places. Instead, uh, if I'm going to pick a text today, I want to take you to one where in some ways the word of forgiveness is a little more subtle but in other ways, it plays out in a really powerful and beautiful way. So this comes from Luke chapter 4. Uh, Luke uh, is one of the four biographies of Jesus. And one thing you need to know about these biographies of Jesus is they're written like very literarily. Like these writers, they're doing things in the way that they tell the story to try to work on us, right? One of the things that Luke does is his first three chapters are written as a kind of prelude or prologue to Jesus' life and ministry. And then in Luke 4, we cross over into the launch of his life uh, in the world, his public life and his ministry. You could say that Luke 4 is the inaugural chapter of Jesus' ministry. Now, if you think about a president, right, they, they take on a new term and they give an inauguration speech. And the point of that inauguration speech, at least theoretically, I guess, is to set a theme for their, for their term, right? This is what my government's going to be all about. And so when you're in Luke 4, there's a bunch of stuff going on. I'm just going to show you one of the things going on. But, but trust me when I tell you, this is setting a theme for the way that you can read the entirety of Jesus' life and ministry. So with that in mind, pay attention to what happens in Luke chapter 4. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. This is his hometown. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. This is one of their scriptures, what we might call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. One of the prophets was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now, a note here. Uh, this Isaiah text is one that all of these people would know. They'd be very familiar with it. It describes uh, for Isaiah and his people a time in the future when God's going to raise up a Messiah, uh, an anointed leader, who's going to come and bring about this era of God's favor, this kind of new era of the kingdom of God in our midst where there's healing and liberation happening. So Jesus reads that moment in the scroll. Uh, this is uh, sometimes called uh, the Jubilee year. And everybody in the synagogue knows how this, how this text goes, right? 
uh, they, don't have, they don't have Netflix, but their memories are very good on this stuff, right? Because all they have is these texts, right? So they, they know this text inside and out. But Jesus rolled up the scroll before he was done reading it. So you and I, we may not know Isaiah by heart, and so we turn to Luke 4 and we're reading it, and we miss something dramatic that's happening here. Let me go back to Isaiah 61 and show you the original text that he was reading. Take note of where he ended and what he left out. So this is Isaiah. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Sound familiar? And the day of vengeance of our God. Did you notice what was missing in Luke 4? The day of vengeance. Now, there's a couple of different ways of interpreting that, but a number of theologians think this is very intentional. He's reading the scroll. He speaks the Lord's favor. You can picture Jesus reading the next line, speaking of the vengeance of our God. And I wonder what goes through his head. I wonder if, if he thinks about the people that he knows, his friends that he would call to be his own disciples. I wonder if he understands that the one thing they don't need is another word about the vengeance of God. I wonder if he thinks about Matthew, the tax collector. To be a Jewish tax collector on behalf of the Roman authorities is to be a total traitor to your people in the name of your own greed and power. And everybody knows it because it's a public position. I wonder if he's reading the scroll and he speaks of the Lord's favor and then he reads the line about vengeance and he thinks about Matthew and says to himself, one thing Matthew already knows is how to hang his head. One thing Matthew already knows is how to be shamed for who he is and what he's done. I'm not going to heap that on anymore. I wonder if he thinks of Simon the Zealot, whose politics could not be farther from Matthew's. Simon the Zealot is known as a, as a, a part of a militant, violent movement whose strategies for accomplishing social change for the Israelite people in the first century over and against the Roman Empire and their cooperators among the Israelites, their strategy is violence. They commit things like assassinations. And I wonder if Jesus thinks of Simon and knows the violence that he carries around with him and the regrets that he carries around with him from his acts of violence, as if violence could create the world that we want. And they're reading the scroll. I wonder if he says, Simon needs not to hear anything more about the vengeance of God. The people have heard enough of that. And so Jesus literally cuts off the prophet, wraps up the scroll and puts it away. And then says, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. Well, what is being fulfilled? Well, yeah, the promise of liberation is being fulfilled. The anointing is being fulfilled. Uh, the healing is being fulfilled. But I wonder if something else is being fulfilled in him, which is that we are closing the book on divine vengeance. I'm going to stop talking to you about that. Um, I've been pastoring for over 20 years now, and it's interesting. I, I'm not an expert on the human heart because the human heart is a mystery, and it, it goes deeper and deeper, and I don't know if any of us can fully know it other than God, but I've learned more and more about the human heart, and it's interesting. I would say I entered the early years of my own ministry thinking that we all needed to be more convinced of our sinfulness. And if we just became more convinced of our sinfulness, somehow we would be more open to the grace and kindness of God. And for 20-some years, I keep discovering over and over and over again that we seem quite aware of it. Now, I'm not saying we all consciously walk around naming it every day. 
There's plenty of ways that we deny our sinfulness, that we pretend that we aren't broken in all the ways that we are broken. But there seems to be a deeper knowing inside. You could call it the conscience. You could call it the work of the spirit. You could call it the soul. But there seems to be a deeper knowing inside for all of the ways that we've failed and fallen short. And I keep discovering that we shy away from God and we shy away from holding our head high and living a brave and beautiful life, not because we're just so selfish and greedy and evil, but so often because we're so ashamed and we are so convinced that we are really worthy of nothing more than that vengeance. And so we don't want to like live too bravely or trust God too deeply because we're, like we've just been made so convinced that vengeance is the final word. And I see Jesus there in Luke 4 closing the book on that. And say, no, I think you know about that. Now, you may not live with it every day with a conscious awareness, but I think you know about that. What I'm here to tell your heart, what I'm here to speak to your soul is the forgiveness, the favor, the mercy, the freely given gift of the kindness of God, that that's what I want you to hear. That's Jesus in Luke 4 as he sets the theme for his ministry. Now, um, I know that the language of sin um, is complicated for a lot of people, and I think for many it's sort of fallen out of favor. Um, It's interesting, I find... Almost everybody's willing to say there are things that are broken in the world and that we do broken things in the world. But I know that some of us have a hard time with that word sin. But I I really have come to believe that uh, we're better off knowing that we're forgiven than pretending that we haven't sinned. Because I think somewhere deep inside we know that we have failed and fallen short. So rather than deny it or run from it or repress it or like try to kick it away, like rather than all those strategies that aren't working for us, I think we're just better off knowing that we're forgiven. That God sees the fullness of our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, and that none of that is exempted from the grace of God. Now, I've also been meditating on on the peculiar way the creed speaks of the forgiveness. The creed could have said, we believe that God forgives us of our sin, which by the way, the creed's definitely saying that, but it doesn't say that. The creed could have said, we believe that God forgives us of our sin, but the creed actually says, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Which reminds me that over and over and over again, the scripture speaks not just of God forgiving us, but us forgiving each other. To say we believe in the forgiveness of sins isn't just to say like we believe that God forgives us our sins. It's like saying we believe in the practice of this. We believe in a way of life that involves the forgiveness of sins. So for a minute, let's talk about forgiving one another. If violence cannot create the world that we want, if vengeance cannot create the world that we want, then we have to talk about how do we dismantle the engines that drive violence and vengeance in us. And yeah, I'm talking about the big, ugly violence that we see in the headlines. I'm also talking about the spiteful, vengeful little ways that we paper cut one another in our relationships, the little grudges that we keep working out that we think are somehow going to make us whole rather than continuing to divide us, how do you like dismantle that engine that keeps propelling us toward violence and vengeance? How do you put an end to that? I mean, like, you've seen it, right? I know I've seen it in my own life. I can decide I want to be a certain kind of person and I want to behave in a certain kind of way, and yet there I go again, doing something other than that and being something other than that. Am I the only one? Right? You tell yourself you're going to relate to your partner, your friends, your family differently, finally. You're going to show up in the co-working place differently, finally. And then after a couple of hours or a couple of days, you're back to your old habits. And so often those old habits are little patterns of passive-aggressive little cuts at one another, little grunges that we keep working out. So if it's true that violence can't make the world that we want and vengeance can't make the world that we want, it's not enough to think that. We've got to figure out how to dismantle it. 
And the good news is I think we've got some insight about that from this whole theological thread. Now, um, when it comes to forgiving other people, I've noticed a predominant trend in how we talk about that in the last few years. And I, I think it's a good trend, but I just want to observe it. So see if this sounds familiar to you. Have you recently in the last few years uh, heard a sermon or seen like an Instagram quote or somebody on a podcast talk about forgiveness and they say something like, like to not forgive is to drink rat poison and hope that they die? Anybody heard that? Yeah, have you heard that? Or how about this one? Uh, to forgive someone is to release someone from prison and to find out the person was you? Have you heard these things? This is great. I think it's true. I think forgiveness is really good for the person who does the forgiving. I think that's really important. I would call this um, an approach to forgiveness that focuses on the therapeutic effect. I'm all for that. We all need more therapy. We all need therapeutic effects. I'm all for that. However, that's not at all how the New Testament talks about forgiveness. Now, I don't think these are contradicting each other. I just think we've gravitated toward the one and we've lost the other. Let me show you a couple of examples of how the New Testament talks about forgiveness. So first, we'll go to Matthew chapter 6. This is in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he's, he's giving us the Lord's Prayer. He says, I want to teach you how to pray. You know, this is the one that goes, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Later in that prayer, we read this. Uh, pray then in this way, Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. Or how about this in Ephesians, this instruction given to the church. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. It seems that as far as I can tell, pretty much every time the New Testament talks about us forgiving each other, the, the logic of it, the power of it, the premise of it is no matter what they've done to you, you actually have something in common with them. That your life and theirs are both woven with the same frayed moral fabric. You actually have something in common with them, which is your mutual need of forgiveness. That, that, yeah, that, that they might have done something heinous to you. And this is not, I'm going to get into that in a moment. But, but, but um, what they did to you may not be what you did to them or what you've done to anyone. There might be orders of magnitude of difference between what they did and what you've done. But it doesn't change the fact that the New Testament logic of forgiveness is that you have in common with the person that you are struggling to forgive your own need of mercy. Now, this is tricky. Because I think what I just said has been used in toxic and harmful ways. The idea that you share in common with them the same need of mercy, I think it's true. It's been used to silence victims of abuse and to ask them to not tell the truth about what happened to them. It's been used to protect people in power when those powerful people have done something harmful. It's been used to silence the people that might hold them accountable. Uh, I, think, I think what I'm describing right now is one of the reasons that we've gravitated toward therapeutic language around forgiveness rather than this theological logic for forgiveness. And that makes sense to me because when that theological logic gets used in really harmful ways, well, we should find some other ways to talk about it too, right? I, that all makes sense to me. But if something true is getting used in harmful ways, don't abandon that truth, reclaim it. Right? 
relocate it back in its proper context. Don't abandon it to its harmful use. And I think that's a little bit of what's happened with this big idea here. Now, all that being said, a few disclaimers, questions, and caveats about all of this. First of all, forgiveness doesn't minimize what happened or the harm that it caused. Forgiveness names it, right? Have you ever had anybody uh, surprise you with a forgiveness attack? You know what I'm talking about? Where they come up to you and they say, hey, I want you to know that I've forgiven you. And you're thinking, for what? <laughs> because the minute they say, I forgive you, the implication is you've done something wrong, right? So let me just say this first of all. Good, true forgiveness doesn't need to minimize what happened. It names it, okay? This isn't about sweeping things under the rug. Forgiveness names what happened. It doesn't minimize it or relativize it, okay? And if the language or the logic of forgiveness is being used to coerce you into minimizing what happened... That's not what this is about. I also want to call out, like, to forgive someone doesn't necessarily mean that you trust them again. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily safe. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have good borders or boundaries with them. These are separate questions about relationship and wisdom that run independent of the underlying question of forgiveness. These are separate things, right? Um, you can forgive someone without bringing them back into your life. It's a separate question. But there is a difference between keeping somebody away to punish them and keeping somebody away to protect yourself. Those are two different things and they come from two very different places inside, right? Uh, I also just want to call out today, uh, when it comes to matters of public accountability and justice, um, that stuff's complicated. And what it means to be a forgiving person or forgiving people um, as we live in a world with very serious harms that need to be addressed that's the work of serious thinkers and theologians and communities to work out together. And we want to be one of those communities too. And that's an ongoing conversation for us to have. I don't think forgiveness is uh, meant to be a way of muting or stifling or silencing those conversations about justice. But I do think it has to shape our approach. One thing I've seen in the last few years is that it can be very hard to tell the difference between justice and vengeance. And that doesn't mean we should stop pursuing justice, but it means we have to keep sifting and sorting the difference. And a lot of that sifting and sorting, I think it happens upstream from our, our, our words and our actions, which are downstream. It happens up in the work of the heart to try to understand what is it that's driving our approach to these questions. And I think one way to do the work of the heart is to remember that we, we have in common with everyone a need for mercy. Now, uh, that's all gotten a little bit conceptual and theoretical. Let me tell you a couple of stories that I think bring this down to earth just a little bit in case they help. First, I'm going to tell somebody else's story because that's easier. Then I'm going to tell mine. That's a little harder. Uh, first, somebody else's story. I heard this story uh, from a pastor and an author, a public theologian who I love to learn from. And it just struck me as, as such a wonderful picture of what we're talking about here. Uh, the pastor I'm talking about is named Nadia Boltz Weber. And uh, Nadia Boltz-Weber, uh, she's a Lutheran pastor. And one thing I love about our Lutheran sisters and brothers is that um, th their understanding of grace is so strong, so powerful. It's one of their contributions to the larger Christian family, right? And she's really, really uh, sharp on this stuff. So like I said, she's kind of a public figure and an author. And she was invited to this event called the Nantucket Project, which as far as I can tell, is this like big bougie thing that wealthy people on the, on the East Coast go to. And it's like, just like TED Talks for rich people, I think. I don't know. But anyway, uh, she gets invited to the Nantucket Project where she's asked to interview a notorious sinner named Lance Armstrong. 
Yeah, most of you know who Lance is, but in case you don't, Lance Armstrong is a world champion cyclist who won the Tour de France, I think, seven times. His victories were made even more remarkable by the fact that he had overcome cancer in the middle of his cycling career. So really impressive standout figure. And then it was discovered that he was at the center of a very sophisticated and long-standing doping scheme where he and some of his teammates were using performance-enhancing drugs to win all those races. So there's been a lot of public scoring heaped on Lance Armstrong. You know, he got really wealthy off of all those wins, and they were dirty wins, if you will, right? So anyway, uh, Nadia is asked to interview Lance Armstrong, and this is after all that has come out. And once it becomes known that she's going to interview him on this public stage, a bunch of people start talking to her, tweeting at her, whispering to her, shouting at her, saying things like, you better not let him off easy. And Nadia thinks about this for a bit. She's like, first of all, I'm not sure if anyone who's attending this event suffered any personal injury from Lance. Like, as far as she knows, it's not that any of his competitors are there who lost races to him because of those performance-enhancing drugs. It's not that any of the companies who paid sponsorships, who, you know, lost faith in him were there. It's just that we love feeling better than somebody, don't we? There is something deep in the human psyche that just wants to know that we're better than somebody else. So drag out the public sinner, put him in the public stocks, and flog him a little bit for the rest of us so that we can tell ourselves that we are better than him. And she sensed how dark that was, how evil that was. And so she figured out, I've got to find a way to dismantle that as I interview Lance Armstrong. So she tells the story. And by the way, the other backdrop, if you don't know Nadia's own story, is that she's been very open and public about her own journey with substance abuse and addiction and recovery. So that's in the backdrop. And then she actually tweeted this opening sentence that she offered Lance Armstrong. This is what she said. So, I see from my notes that you took some drugs you weren't supposed to and then you lied about it. OMG, I did that stuff so many times. Do you see, like, all of the logic at work there? You're this notorious public sinner, but I'm going to, in front of everyone, just recognize I, too, have things to atone for. And from that place, uh, the conversation that happened was described as a really generative, beautiful conversation. But something had to shift in the room, right? So that people stopped projecting all of their own shame, all their own sin, all their own issues on him. Uh, That's Nadia's story, now one of my own. Uh, A few years ago, a story got told about me that wasn't true. There were a couple of basic facts that were um, paired with a couple of misunderstandings that were paired with a couple of all-out lies, just flat-out lies. And the story started getting told about me, and I learned about the story from other people through third parties. And it spread fast because a few of the first people I heard it from lived in Los Angeles and New York City. Um... It hurt me really deeply. It doesn't feel good to be misunderstood. It hurts even worse to be lied about. And then to find out that that lie is spreading like wildfire. It affected me uh, personally, relationally, and professionally. And uh, to this day, there are still some weird kind of repercussions that come from this this lie that got told about me by somebody else. As that was all blowing up, like I was really hurt and angry feeling protective and defensive, as you might be, if, uh, if this story is getting told about you that isn't true. And I was talking to a friend one day about all of this. This friend of mine had a front row seat for everything. He had a front row seat 
for this couple of basic events and then for the misunderstandings and then for the all-out lies. He'd seen it all firsthand. He knew all the receipts, right? So I was talking to this friend of mine, and I was doing what you would do, which is I was looking for a little bit of sympathy. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, could you just please be the one person in the world that agrees with me and tells me that that person's awful and I'm amazing and I've done nothing wrong. Could you just give me a little bit of that solace, right? So I'm talking to this friend of mine and we're talking about the story. And I say to him, I say, I kind of tee it up. I'm like, you know, am I crazy? Did I do anything wrong? Which I didn't really want the answer to that question. I just wanted him to say, no, 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 you're wonderful and they're awful. But I say to him, did I do anything wrong? And he says, yeah. I say, excuse me? He says, the one thing you missed, man, is when it first started coming out, you never confronted it. Like, you know, you got defensive about it and you hunkered down in, in your bunker. You, you didn't just like go to the source and confront it head on. And if you would have done that, I don't know what would have happened, but there's a chance this would have gone very differently. Now that stung for reasons you understand, but it also stung for reasons I'll explain that you don't know yet. Uh, let me back up for a minute. Everybody I know, including me, basically has lists of two kinds of sins or failures in their life. There's the list of sins or failures that come from your action, when you did the wrong thing, you, you know, you, you acted in a wrong way, right? And then there's the list of sins or wrongs or failures that come from inaction, right? Um, you could call these in the old school language sins of commission, and sins of omission, right? So you committed an act and it was wrong or harmful or you omitted an act. You failed to show up. You failed to speak. You failed to do the right thing, right? So everybody I know, we all have like lists of both, right? But here's the other thing. For everybody, you know, there tends to be a dramatic differential between which list is longer. And this has to do with personality type, wounding, wiring, family systems. So for some people, the list of, of failures and sins that come from action is much longer than the list of failures or sins that come from inaction. For other people, it's the list of inaction where a lot of the hurt has been caused. And I'm the kind of person, through personality type and wiring and wounding and family systems and all that other stuff, whose second list is longer than the first list. A lot of the hurt I've caused in the world, a lot of the harm that I've created, a lot of my failure points come from inaction, from backing away, from withdrawing when I should have shown up. So when he named an act of withdrawal, he really put his finger on it, you know? And because of that, I was sort of confronted face to face with this painful reminder, which is I have much in common with the person that I'm pretty upset with right now. We both are in need of mercy. Now, I don't know what situation you're struggling with when it comes to forgiveness. I've just named one where I've got something to own. Yours may not be that way. There are situations in the world where one person is pure victim and one person is pure violator in the situation, in the actions that harm. That can be the case. It's not always the case that there's some equivalence of harm in a relationship or a, an act, right? But underneath all of it, what I'm arguing for, and I'm just taking this straight from the scripture, is that in every situation of forgiveness, there is an underlying common ground. I don't know what that means necessarily for questions of accountability and justice, but I'm certain what it means for the heart. And that we cannot create the world we want with violence and vengeance. And that to create a different and better kind of world, we've got to dismantle the energies of violence and vengeance. And the way we get there is through forgiveness. 
And forgiveness is birthed not just from understanding that it's good for us, but through understanding that we have in common with everyone our need for it. Uh, when I sat there with Dr. Chenoweth at that bonfire and they shared this really compelling research and then the hope that it birthed, the questions I found myself asking as we were talking was, how is it that we would sustain that in the world, though? When there is so much harm ricocheting around the world, right? So much injury just bouncing around the world. How can we sustain a stance of forgiveness when we keep hurting one another like that? And I'm deeply convinced that the way we get there is to know that we are forgiven rather than pretending that we haven't sinned. And then to recognize that that gives us something in common with the people that we are struggling to forgive. Now, um, it's common in church gatherings to have liturgies of confession and repentance. And the tricky thing about a liturgy is um, that a lot of whether it works or not, in a good way or a bad way, has to do with how you come into it, how you enter it, right? So two people could enter the same prayer or partake in the same sacrament, and it might do two very different things based on how you come to that moment. I say that because uh, we wanted to avail ourselves today of a, of a resource from our Anglican brothers and sisters, a, a prayer of confession and forgiveness. But before we do that, I just want to point out, this is not meant for you to hang your head and beat yourself up or shame yourself. Rather, it's meant to say that all those um, failure points, perhaps that theory that you carry around in you that you haven't measured up, that that part of you doesn't have to be sequestered or suppressed, that you can bring that part of you into this space as well. That all of that can belong here with us and with God. And the point of it isn't that you beat yourself up, but rather than having brought it out into the open, you can receive a word of blessing and forgiveness as a practice, as a way of developing muscle memory for the forgiveness that is freely given for all of us. And so today, uh, if you'd like to partake in it, you're welcome to. We're gonna offer simply a, a prayer of confession and forgiveness. Uh, before we do that, I'm going to create just a, a brief moment of reflection. And uh, we'll put some music behind that for you too. And then when all that's done, uh, Zach will help us sing just a little bit more before we go. Uh, but let's start first with a moment of reflection if you'd like to join me in this. Uh, it might help you if you want to uh, close your eyes, if you want to put your feet flat on the floor, if that helps you be more present here. And I'll offer simply uh, a couple of questions to help us reflect before we turn to this prayer of confession. Holy Spirit, I pray you guide us as we reflect. The first question is simply this, church. Is there anything in your life, any moment, any act, any broken relationship, any failure, is there anything in your life where you deeply struggle to believe that God would forgive you. If you would take a moment, and I know for some it won't come to mind and that's okay, but take a moment with that question. Is there anything in your life, any moment, any act, any behavior, any struggle, any failure that you're struggling to believe that God would forgive you for? Now take a moment and hunt for that in your heart.
If something came to mind, it's good that you can name it today. And if not, that's totally okay too. The next question is this. Is there anything that somebody else has done that you are struggling to forgive? It could have been one moment, one act. It could have been a whole pattern of behavior, a whole way of being for them that harmed you. It could be somebody who's close to you and in your life today or somebody who's at a great distance or no longer here. Is there anybody in your life that you are struggling to forgive? As those people or situations come to mind, I'll just point out, forgiveness is often long, hard work. So the fact that you may be struggling to forgive that person, I don't want you to feel that as a point of failure. I just invite you to recognize it today. And that being said, if you'd like to be a part of this prayer of confession and you're able, why don't you stand to your feet? Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. And now we join this confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, have mercy on you, forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. And now we'll sing. violence cannot build the world that we want. 
May we remember that vengeance can't build the marriage we want, the families we want, the community that we want, the church that we want, the city that we want. May we trust, may we believe in the forgiveness of sins, not scarcely given, but freely given to us and for us. And may we learn to freely offer forgiveness to one another. May grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.